1: Another edition of Atlantic and Coastal The Athletics ACC podcast I am your host Andy Bitter The Virginia Tech football beat writer A little somber podcast this week Uh, Some sad news coming out of the ACC Earlier this week with Bobby Bowden passing away, 91 years old. Uh, He had pancreatic cancer. This had been announced during the ACC kickoff that he was facing a terminal illness. So I think everybody had a sense that this was coming. It still doesn't make the news easy to hear. Uh, One of the best to do it, period. I mean, that's all there is to it. He was a great coach, a better person by all accounts, Uh, So we're going to use this podcast today to talk a little bit about Bobby Bowden. I have Andrea Adelson of ESPN.com coming on. She covers the ACC, and she's covered Bobby Bowden for a long time. Uh, She grew up as a fan in South Florida uh following the the rivalry between miami and florida state she then became a reporter and got to meet bobby Bowden in person and uh, sort of got the the personal side of him with his wife ann uh and by all accounts he lived up to everything that she expected out of him in terms of uh, sincerity and genuineness. And I, I think that's why you hear a lot of these nice words coming out this week from former players and, and coaches that have coached against him and people in the ACC that worked with him. Uh, I think uh, he's a lot like Frank Beamer in that sense, something that I've covered for a while that uh, you wonder, is he really that nice? Yeah, he is that nice. Uh, two things with Bobby Bowden kind of struck uh, stuck out with me in my time. As a reporter, and I didn't cover him directly. I kind of covered him indirectly, whenever Virginia Virginia Tech uh, played against Florida State or uh, at the ACC kickoff. I remember I was covering Virginia in 2004, and this was like a big game. UVA I think was number six, Florida State was number seven, and they were going down to Tallahassee to play. And the Seminoles just beat the brakes off them that night. It was a 36 to three route The game was not close. Uh, this was an 8 p.m. start, I think, so all the writers were on deadline in the press box, and they come up in the fourth quarter, and they hand us, uh, the SIDs there, hand us a quote sheet uh, from Bobby Bowden. He given an interview mid-game to provide to reporters uh, to put in their stories, knowing that that was a, a deadline game like that. Uh, I thought that was kind of funny. Uh, in hindsight, I can't imagine anybody ever doing that uh, today, the other memory I have of him was from the ACC kickoff, and he always sort of held court at the ACC kickoff. That's the, the league's media days in July. Used to do it in Greensboro. Uh, and I remember one year they were talking about Joe Maurer, and Joe Mauer, the, the baseball catcher for the Twins, uh, playing at Creighton Durham Hall in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was the number one football prospect in the country. He ended up ta- being taken number one overall in the Major League Draft. But he was also an incredible football player. He had committed to Florida State, uh, then later decided to play uh, baseball. Pretty good decision on his part. Uh, but Bobby Bowden was being asked about Joe Mauer after the fact, and, and, and he's sitting there just uh, you know yucking it up with reporters, and he goes, and it, it, the numbers on this might be wrong, so forgive me if I have the numbers wrong, but the sentiment is correct. And he goes, Joe Mauer. Went the baseball route. They signed him for $5 million. Well, heck, we'd have given them six. And everybody around him just breaks out laughing. That was just sort of the effect he had. He was able to disarm people like that. He was able to joke about stuff like that. I mean, he's joking about paying players. That's the funny part about this whole thing. I think there are very few coaches in college football who could have gotten away with something like that. So we're going to take this first part of the podcast uh, talking with Andrea Uh, reminiscing a little bit about Bobby Bowden, talking about him as the person, the coach, and what they built at Florida State. And we'll touch a little bit on uh, some ACC stuff in the season coming up as well at the end. Okay, joining us now to talk about Bobby Bowden and his legacy is Andrea Adelson. She writes about the ACC and more for ESPN.com. She also grew up in South Florida, which is why I think she has a great perspective uh on what bowdy who bobby bowden was and and what he meant in that state and and andrea i'll start with this and set aside the reporter hat for a second uh we'll get to all that stuff later i want to ask you from a personal standpoint what was it like growing up uh and watching the seminoles be this good in that rivalry with miami it sounds like this is sort of what got you into college football in the first place
2: it was the best. There's no question about that. And a few weeks ago, we started a favorites list for ESPN favorite stadium, favorite tailgate, favorite rivalry. And without question, I typed Miami, Florida State because of the way that I grew up in the 1980s watching that. It may not be today what it was back then, but growing up in the heart of that rivalry made me love college football, made me want to be a sports writer. I always loved to write and I loved college football and football in particular in in South Florida. How could you not with the Miami dolphins and the Miami hurricanes in the 1980s being at the top of their game. So I just have these vivid memories of sitting next to my dad on the couch, watching all of these fantastic games. And even though when you're growing up rooting for Miami, you're supposed to root against Florida State at all costs, it was always hard to root against Bobby Bowden because he was such a nice guy. He never said anything bad about anybody. He never fed into the trash talk that you would see on the field between the two teams. And my heart broke just a little bit when they lost some of those wide right games because of the look on his face afterward. Yes, I was happy Miami won, but at the same time, Seeing the way Bobby reacted and knowing once again, Miami was going to keep Florida State from winning a national championship as a Hurricanes fan, um, maybe meant a little bit more, but also made you feel a little bit for Bobby uh, because of the heartbreaking ways that they lost. So, yes, I, I credit watching those games growing up as being instrumental in why I wanted to end up covering college football.
1: It's interesting because Miami, the dynasty was the U and it sort of had this rotating cast of coaches and Schnellenberger and Jimmy Johnson, Dennis Erickson. I mean, it, it, there wasn't one face that you identified with that program. It was just the you and that's, it was just in the stratosphere of college football, Florida state was Bobby Bowden. I mean, he was the guy, he was the constant there. Uh, it, it's just interesting to me to hear that you were a Miami fan and you kind of rooted for him to win sometimes. I, cause I remember, you know, I was pretty young too. Uh, at that point, watching those games. And you're right. The look of bewilderment on his face with those field goals where he's running out the field. He thinks they're good. And he kind of looks around like, Hey, what just happened? Uh, I mean, it, that feel like it really elevated college football at that point too.
2: No question. And everybody tuned in, right? Everyone remembers Brent Musburger saying it's high noon. It's time for Miami, Florida state. Cause that's when they played those games back then in the 1980s. Uh, and so when you realize that these programs were ascending at the same time in the same state, both competing for national championships every year, knowing that what was going to happen in that game would ultimately probably determine the national championship that year made the stakes even greater in those games. That's why the wide rights were even more heartbreaking for Florida State back then, because if we're talking about now, they can survive those and still make the playoff. Back then, there was no playoff. There was the old bowl system where one loss was devastating. And that happened to Florida State multiple times where they ended up with one loss to Miami that kept them from winning a national championship. So I know a lot of folks have talked recently, well, if they had played in the playoff era, think about how many more national championships Florida State may have won. And I think that's accurate. And that's why Bobby Batanoe said on his tombstone, they would write, and he played Miami because Miami seemed to be the one school that they, they couldn't get past in order to win some of those multiple championships. And I think when they finally did win their first national championship in 1993, there was just this overwhelming sense of relief, I think, because they had made so much progress and made so many strides to get there that finally, yes, they were able to conquer what seemed to be the unconquerable at that time. Uh, And again, even though I was a Miami fan, I was happy for Bobby Bowden that he finally could get that um, on his resume because he absolutely deserved it for the way that he built that program.
1: Yeah. It's a credit to him that, you know, he went out there and he played those kind of games and didn't shy away from them, uh, you know, building that program up. I don't know if people necessarily build a program up quite like that today where they play anyone, anywhere, anytime, uh, and he did that. There were a lot of great coaches throughout college football history, and, and we'll get to Bowden's place within that in a second. But I want to ask you about Bowden, the person, because you sort of had this uh, you know, familiarity with him growing up like that. And then you had the unique situation where then you become a reporter and you cover him. Uh, and I, I read the story that you posted earlier this week, where you sat with him on the golf cart, talking to him about his wife Anne for a story when you were at the Orlando Sentinel. What was that like? Uh, can you sort of take us through that moment uh, of sitting down with a person that you've seen on TV for all this time, and was he as genuine as in person as you would expect?
2: Yes, a hundred thousand percent. Yes, and of course I was nervous as all get out because here is this legend that I'm about to sit down and interview, and I wanted to make sure that I wasn't stumbling over my words and that I was getting my questions out without realizing the magnitude of the moment, at least for me personally. And I have to just sit here and rewind and tell the whole story because I think it just gives a glimpse into the Bowdens and who they are as people. I had gotten to the Orlando Sentinel that September, and one of my first assignments was to do profiles on Ann Bowden and Shelly Meyer, who is the wife of Urban Meyer at Florida. And that's where I went to school, the University of Florida. So I'm thinking the Florida one may be a little bit easier because they had just gotten there and I would be nervous about Bowden and everyone's asked him the same questions over and over again. And he's this legend, but it was actually the complete opposite. And when I tried to figure out how am I going to set up this interview? Um, one of my colleagues said, well, you know, the Bowdens are listed in the phone book. All you have to do is look them up and call the house and set it up. <laughs> I'm like, wait, hold on. I don't have to go through a uh, PR department. What are you talking about? Yeah, just call the home and and we will be happy to talk to you. So that's what I did. I looked them up in the old phone book. There was their number listed and said, sure, uh, Come to the house and pick me up and we'll go out to lunch. And I'm like, okay, you want me to come to your house? Yeah, yeah, come to the house. So already that's a complete difference from the way you normally set up what your interviews are. It's always very carefully done through the PR department at the school and everyone's got to figure out a good day and a good time. She tells me to roll up to the house. Okay, So I roll up to the house and Terry Bowden answers the door uh, because he was between jobs at that point, was living back at home. And that already I was like, where am I right now? Terry Bowden is answering the door at Bobby Bowden's house and he's hollering for his mom. And she comes out and she tells him there's a salad in the fridge waiting for him for lunch. So already I'm getting the sense that they're not the usual, quote, coach, right? Who, and coach's family who are so guarded and everything is so controlled and everything is so private. They're an open book. And I go to lunch with Anne and it's a two hour lunch. And she's telling me all about meeting Bobby and getting married and what it was like at West Virginia. And it was awesome. I got, I got to say, it was just like having a, a lunch with an old friend, even though I had just met her literally that afternoon. So now it's time to go out to practice to talk to Bobby. And of course I'm just, okay, take a deep breath. You know how to do this. You know, how to ask questions. It'll be fine. And he invites me out of the golf cart. Like I'm again, his best buddy from back home. And it was a 15-minute conversation, and he was so happy to talk about Ann, and he immediately put me at ease. And it just made me understand and realize why so many people talked about Bobby Bowden, the person, and the way that Bobby Bowden, the person, ran the program, and why Bobby Bowden, the person, had such an impact on people, because he just made you feel like he cared about you no matter who you were. And I'm just a reporter. So think about how many people that he interacted with inside that program over the time that he spent in that program who have stories and stories for days and days about Bobby Bowden and the impact he made on them and then how that influenced them to make an impact on others. And when I think about it, all I can say to myself is I hope I can have that sort of impact myself in my community because of what he was able to do for as long as he was in Tallahassee.
1: You know, I didn't have any personal experiences with Bobby Bowden like that, but it sounds to me a lot like Frank Beamer and how people describe Frank Beamer. And I, it, people always ask me that, is he that nice in person? And, you know, to a certain degree with some of these football coaches, I feel like they kind of lean into the act a little bit. Uh, you know, they, this is a salesmanship thing. You have sort of a, a, a role to play in this whole thing, but deep down, I think these guys are like that. I think, uh, there's a genuineness to to Bobby Bowden and Frank Beamer that they're like that, and you know treat everybody the same. I mean, that's always been the thing about Frank Beamer is he'll treat the CEO like the janitor. I'm mean, the same kind of person. It sounds like Bobby Bowden was like that person. I'm not. I'm not going to be like oh Saint Bobby. Like all these people seem to say he was a cutthroat guy and he wanted to win and he did it, but he did it with a smile on his face. And there's always this jovialness about him that uh, you know I remember early in the ACC kickoff days when I covered it in the 2004 2005, something like that, he would just hold court at that table and it'd be like three deep. And he just had this way of just disarming people when he talked to them and it made it seem like he was your best friend or like he was talking to you personally, even though it's this group of like 60 people that are around him. And it's weird because he could do these things that, if another coach did it, it would sort of rub you the wrong way. Like I was watching the Virginia tech national championship game against Florida state. And it's like during the game and they're running a flea flicker on the plane, he's giving a sideline interview in the middle of the game and it's behind him and it's like, oh, dang, it's through that one deep or like the, the whole Sebastian Janikowski thing where, you know, he missed curfew and he's like, well, I have a Warsaw rule. I'm not going to suspend it. But like if any other coach did that, you'd be like, oh, this guy's, you know, "it's uh, then but if it's Bobby Bowen, you just kind of smile with it uh, and, and take it in stride. I'm curious, were you a part of those breakfast with Bobby sessions, uh, after, uh, home games uh, on Sundays at Florida state, it's at a hotel down the interstate a little bit. What were those like?
2: Yes, I was. And the first time I went to one again, it was this out of body experience because coaches don't do that. Coaches don't give you extra time to just sit and chat. That's not the way it works anymore. I think that may have been the way it worked back in the 1970s and the 1980s, but at this time, it was in the mid-2000, mid-2000s mid when I had my first chance to do it. Programs and coaches and, and players were more locked down. Uh, the access had been restricted over the years to the point where it's hard to even do a one-on-one interview uh, these days. But Bobby uh, did what he always did. Which was meet with the media on Sundays. I think it was a Hampton Inn off I 10, had coffee and breakfast, and he'd sit at the, uh, in a conference room at a long conference table. He'd sit at the head of it, and all the reporters would sit around him. And it was just a chat. We could talk about the game. Uh, we could talk about whatever we wanted to talk about. Extremely informal, uh, but always entertaining. And I, I think that's one part of, of Bobby that I hope people remember is his humor and his one-liners. And that was one of the ways that he would disarm people. I think Dabo Sweeney the other day said the last time he talked to him, he told him, you know, if you get up, up there to heaven before me. Can you put in a a good word for me? And Bobby said something about, uh, you know, I've always been wide or, you know, referring to the missed field goals. Uh, So even uh, in his final weeks, he still retained that sense of humor. And and I do think what you said about the St. Bobby nickname is, is really important because Bobby didn't like that nickname. Everybody has flaws. Nobody's perfect. And I think Bobby didn't want people to think that he was this otherworldly person come to earth because he had his own flaws like anybody else. And he did get criticism for the way he handled Janikowski, uh, the way that There were issues on that football team, Free Shoes University, uh, the way that Steve Spurrier uh, made fun of them when they got into serious trouble and Peter Warwick got into serious trouble for getting free merchandise from a footlocker, the Randy Moss situation, um, other times where he had given players second and third chances who had gotten into trouble. If he was coaching today, I'm not sure, even with his demeanor and the way that he drew people in, he'd be able to get away with some of the stuff maybe that they were able to get away with in the 1980s in terms of discipline and some of the other issues uh, that made headlines uh, in a non-social media world. So I I do think there are valid criticisms about some of the ways that he handled things at Florida State when things got negative. But at the same time, Uh, Because of who he was and because of the way he built the program and because of the legacy that he leaves behind, I think everybody is able to judge for themselves what they think about Bobby Bowdoin and how they want to remember him, because I certainly believe that all of the good that he did outweighs whatever criticism there might be.
1: Well, free shoes wouldn't be an issue uh, in today's NIL uh, world. They just sign a little contract and they'd have that... I, I want to turn to his on the field run. It, it's so ridiculous how good that team was for so long. And I don't think people quite remember how bad Florida state was before he got there. Like we've just sort of existed in this world where Florida state has been good for so long, uh, until these recent struggles, the the Seminoles were four and 29, the three years before he got there, they had never had a top 10 finish, had one 10 win season in his history after he gets there, 16 top 10 finishes, and this is the, the best uh, stats like in the history of football, like 14 straight top five finishes from 1987 to 2000. And really, that was 13 straight top four. They finished number five in that last year. So 13 straight years in the top four. Uh, I'm curious, will we ever see that again? Because I know people say, well, Alabama right now is on this run. And that's true. Alabama has been great. And I think Nick Saban is probably the best college football coach of all time, but they have had a sixth place finish in there and a 10th and a 7th and an 8th sprinkled in with all those national championships to be top four every single year. Uh, I feel like that's just impossible to, to do today.
2: I think the streak right now is six. I want to say if, if I saw that <laughs> correctly. So think about that. I think it's Clemson. So eight more years where they're finishing in the top five just to match what Florida State did back then Um, it's hard to imagine any scenario uh, where a team can get there because of where college football is right now. And just the sheer difficulty of it. If you're finishing in the top five or the top four, you're either undefeated or you've only lost once. That's pretty much it. Uh, it, It's rare to find a two loss team sitting there in the top four. And uh, because we're playing more games than they did back then, Especially with now an expanded playoff, we're talking about teams that are going to have to go 16 and 0 or 15 and 1, basically, every single year uh, to be able to get to 14 straight. Um, that seems impossible. It, it really does because the level of competition, even though we have seen teams rise up uh, to separate themselves, is still greater than it was back in the 1980s when Florida State. Uh, and and the 1990s when Florida State was making this run there's greater parity and we see upsets maybe happen a little bit more often so uh i i'm never going to say never but i just think that streak in particular is so impressive because of what it takes to be able to get it done right it's not just winning the games it's knowing that everybody is targeting you every single week it's knowing that even when you're playing an opponent that you should beat by three touchdowns that you're going to get up for the game uh, and be ready to play that game and be perfect basically to be able to get it done and the pressure and the expectations right now In this environment are so much greater than what they were back then and clemson has talked about this repeatedly knowing that everybody is trying to take them down the same thing for alabama the same thing for ohio state that they have to make sure that they're always playing at their highest level uh every single week or they could lose so uh, that streak in particular is one I don't think gets talked about enough because of the enormity of what it took to get that accomplished. And then think about how many of those seasons ended with that loss to Miami uh, and, and what that could have meant for Florida State in particular, going back to what we were talking about earlier. So um, to sit back and, and marvel at that, I think is going to be one of those streaks as we continue to progress forward in college football that will get, uh, I think more and more appreciated as we get further and further away from that era in college football.
1: It does make you wonder uh, what this team could have accomplished national championship wise in a playoff era. Yes. If they would have been in it basically for 14 straight years. I mean, he won two of them and that's a really tall task, especially in that era. But if you give him a mulligan in the regular season and say, oh, that wide right didn't count that much, Uh, maybe we're talking about Bobby Bowden having a national championship trophy case like like Nick Saban. I mean, that's how good those teams were. They could have done it, uh, I think. I'm curious, and and I want to touch on this too because this is an ACC podcast, just Florida State and Bobby Bowden's impact on the ACC joined in 1992. They won or shared the league title in their first nine years in the league. They didn't lose a game. They were 29-0 until work done gets stopped at the goal line by you know two inches against Virginia uh, they were 70 and two in ACC play in their first nine years I mean they dominated this league and they really elevated the profile football wise of the ACC where's the ACC right now if not for Bobby Bowden in Florida State
2: I will never forget I was in a sports bar watching that End of that game, Florida State, Virginia, and when they stopped, work done. It was like the world had ended. It was inconceivable that Florida State and Warwick Dunn could be stopped like that in the ACC. They were a runaway train; nobody could stop them. And that game is going to go down certainly in ACC history for what it meant. But there's no question that adding Florida state into the ACC gave the league football credibility at a time where it absolutely had to have football credibility at, in that, in that era, we were moving away from football, basketball kind of carrying the load to football only in terms of what it meant for TV money and revenues and where conferences were headed. So they had to have, a football presence. They could no longer be known as a basketball conference. And even today, this is something that the ACC continues to struggle with is that basketball identity that's always identified themselves. Where does football fit into it? Jim Phillips today in 2021 is talking about we need to make football more of a priority. So even though Florida State gave them this instant credibility in the 1990s, The ACC is still trying to figure out how do we make ourselves more of a football conference. And I think part of that is because Florida State was so dominant in the ACC, nobody could keep up with them because nobody had a football program built the way Florida State did. Uh, So that was the first blueprint. Then we saw Virginia Tech come on board and they start dominating in the ACC. They couldn't win those BCS games. And that's something that I think will kind of always stay with with Virginia tech and now obviously Florida state um, had a revival and they had the blueprint. Now Clemson has the blueprint. So that's really only three teams in the ACC that have put themselves in position to win championships. Right. And Florida state has been at the forefront of two of those eras. Uh, And so I just think that speaks to the importance and the value of Florida state. And if Florida state gets back to where they were in the, heyday of Bobby Bowden and then in the heyday of Jimbo Fisher, then the ACC will be much better off than where they are right now from a football perspective. And I think that's one thing that when Jim Phillips says we need to elevate football in the ACC, he's directly talking to Florida State. Florida State needs to get back up there uh, because with a Florida State that's average and mediocre, the reputation of the ACC suffers. And I think a lot of that goes back to, florida state joining the acc when they did
1: well i think jim phillips uh, john swafford every acc commissioner in the last 30 years probably owes a debt of gratitude to florida state i don't think the league is around right now if not for florida state coming in and uh bobby bowden having the success that he did now i just in this age where football rules everything i feel like the league would have just gotten ripped apart at some point kind of like the big east so uh, incredible life, incredible coach, incredible person, uh, Bobby Bowden. Uh, I really enjoyed all these stories with you, Andre. I do want to touch on just some ACC stuff, football. I mean, the season's coming up. My goodness, the season <laughs> we've been sidetracked by all sorts of, of conversations with realignment and NIL and all this stuff in the offseason. season. Here we are. The season's three weeks away. I, I can't even tell my calendar's all thrown off. I'm curious. What are you looking forward to the most in the ACC this year, is there a storyline or anything that stands out in your mind?
2: Beyond actually being in full football stadiums, hopefully, I'm going to keep my fingers crossed that we're yeah, still not, be able to get to, get to that there. point, right? Don't want to jinx anything, but um, beyond just what hopefully will be a return to normalcy, but again, I think that a lot of folks are still cognizant of where we are with the COVID and the Delta variant and how that may impact uh, games and teams. But if we're just talking about a, quote, normal season of football, I think there's two things. Uh, Number one, I do think that the ACC has the potential to have a better year overall than what we've seen in recent years because of the quarterback play and the return of so many experienced and good quarterbacks in the ACC. The last time the ACC had this many starters back was 2016. And that was the best year the ACC had, right? And the ACC needs it. They absolutely need it right now because of what's happening outside in college football with realignment and with the playoff expansion. That's why Jim Phillips has been pushing this elevate football narrative basically since he arrived there. So the message has been sent and the ACC has to do this. And the other part of that is there are a lot of big non-conference games in the first three weeks of the season that the ACC is going to have to win in order to start proving and showing that they're more than just Clemson and everybody else. So I think that's the first part of it is this whole elevate football. Okay, do they have the potential to do that this year with all of these quarterbacks and some more veteran teams coming back? I think the potential is there for that. I think the second part of that is, is anybody going to challenge Clemson? Because when you look at Clemson on paper, there are a lot of changes on this team this year, uh, maybe more so than than usual when you're talking about losing Trevor Lawrence and Travis Etienne and having an entirely new backfield. The offensive line was, I think, average last year. So how do they improve there? Justin Ross has been medically cleared, but what is he going to look like after a year and a half off? Um and who else is going to step up at the receiver position? I just listed every position on offense that has a question mark, right? We think we know what DJ Lele is going to do. Um, but until we see the entire unit completely together, we don't really know. Defensively, the defensive front going to be great. But are the linebackers going to be better than what they showed against Ohio State? And I think the secondary needs to take a big step up, too. So there are for me, there are more questions about Clemson going into the season than we have seen, I think, over the last five years. And they open with Georgia. And then after that game, they have nobody else that's ranked. So what does that mean for Clemson? What does that mean for the ACC? Can North Carolina live up to this advanced billing and not lose games that they're supposed to win uh, like they have? Uh, what's going to happen in Miami after the opener against Alabama? Are they going to be an actual threat in the coastal or is their season going to get derailed if they lose by three touchdowns? These are all questions that I have. And I think those questions will go a long way toward answering whether the ACC can actually live up to the potential that they have to be better as an overall conference.
1: Well, I ask you specifically about those two teams you mentioned at the end there, UNC and Miami. Uh, they're number nine, UNC number nine in the coaches poll preseason, Miami's number 16. Uh, Are you buying those teams? I mean, historically UNC, when it gets a little bit of uh, attention like that tends not to live up to the billing Uh, Miami, we've seen it over and over uh, in the years, Miami, the U is back. No, it's not back. And it's, uh, you know, in the belt bowl or the pinstripe bowl or whatever it is. Uh, Do you think either of these teams could be good enough to, to give Clemson a run for its money?
2: Well, we saw Miami last year against Clemson and they weren't. And I don't necessarily know what has changed between last season and this season to put Miami closer to Clemson. Even though I just listed some of those question marks for Clemson, they're still more talented and deeper than Miami is right now. North Carolina for me is the more intriguing one because it feels as if they have the pieces in place, but nobody's talking about, All of the star players that they've lost on offense from a year ago. Everybody thinks that they're just going to plug and play at running back and at receiver because they have Sam Howell back. I think their offensive line is going to be really good. But there's still some questions at North Carolina about is the offense just going to pick up because they have Sam Howell. And defensively, they have to play more consistently. I mean, this is a Jekyll and Hyde defense that... One week they look really good and the next week they're giving up you know 300 yards rushing and you're saying to yourself, what, what exactly happened here? I mean, they lose to a bad Florida State team last year. That shouldn't happen. They lose to Virginia. Uh, and you're right. They haven't been able to handle those expectations. And I asked Mac Brown about that at kickoff. What is about this team is different? but they can handle these expectations. And he basically said, we have to wait and see, right? I mean, we're older, we're more mature, we're more experienced, but we have to be able to handle those if we want to be able to compete for championships. So nine to me seems a little high for North Carolina, but I have to say I had to do a preseason ranking myself for ESPN and beyond those top six teams, whoo. It was hard slotting in uh, everybody. So I'm not surprised to see North Carolina rank that high because really um, it's the top five or six and then it's just everybody else at this point. So this is a big year for them because the expectations are so high. I'm not sure that they have the depth of where Clemson is. But if Clemson isn't as strong as they've been, then there's an opening, I think, for a team like North Carolina.
1: Well, three weeks from now, we're going to find out. The season's going to start. We're going to have actual games. You and I will be in stadiums again, hopefully with people. Uh, It's going to be great stuff. Andrea, thank you so much for coming on, uh, providing uh, this perspective on Bobby Bowden. I really enjoyed that conversation and uh, looking forward to the season.
2: So am I, Andy. Thanks for having me again.
1: All right. That's going to do it for this episode. Thanks again to Andrea Adelson for coming on, giving us those great stories On Bobby Bowden, uh, just great perspective on his life and his personality. Go follow her on Twitter, A. Adelson, ESPN. Read her stuff on ESPN.com. She covers the ACC as well as anybody. That's going to do it for this show. Everybody, please go rate and review us on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. That helps us get the word out for this. We want to grow this audience this year. Uh, That would help us a whole lot. And if you haven't yet, Please go subscribe to the Athletic. You can listen to this podcast ad free. You can read all of our great college football coverage. I'm amazed at the kind of stuff uh, that my colleagues put out every day. But subscribing to the Athletic, you also get everything in every other sport on the site. Uh, that's a great deal. Go to theathletic.com/accpod to see what kind of deals we have. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at AndyBitterVT. We'll be back again next week to do this again.